Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful as we gather this morning that we don't need to invite you to come and to be among us in this gathering. Rather, it is you who invites us to come and to be in your presence. And so we're grateful, Father, that as we gather together, as we join together this morning, we have given, we have been given your word, is, which is able to open up our minds and to understand who you are greater than we understand you right now. And we're grateful that you have given us your spirit, who is able to enlighten our minds, to convict us of truth, to show us our sin, who is able to transform our lives. And we're grateful for Jesus, who made all of that possible. That because of him, we really do have life here on earth. That we really do have life beyond here on earth, on beyond the grave as well. Jesus has done everything for us. He is our everything. So I pray, our Lord, as we consider your word this morning, renew our hearts and our affections for him. I pray for all of those who are gathered here this morning. Would you give our hearts greater love for our Savior? And I pray that as those who may be here this morning that may not know you, would you help them so that their eyes would be able to see you, maybe even for the first time. How wonderful you are, our God, our Savior. How able you are to be able to answer our prayer better than we are able to speak it. So please hear our prayer and answer our prayer and respond to us this morning, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by giving you a scenario, okay? I want you to imagine that you go home this afternoon, and you get home, and when you get home, you get a call, and the call is actually from your best friend, okay? It's, it's your best friend. You've been best friends for as long as you can remember. You guys have great memories together. You guys are the best of friends. And so when you pick up the phone, you, you pick up the phone and you hear your friend's voice and there's great excitement on your friend's voice, okay? And so as soon as you pick up, you know that there's something up. So you're like, hey, what's going on? What's up? And so as they start talking to you, they tell you that they have plans to run to be the next president of the United States in 2016, okay? Now listen, it sounds like a crazy idea, but if you ever had a friend that could possibly see this actually happen, this is the guy, right? This is the guy or this is the girl where this could really happen. Like, it, it wouldn't be like Sibby coming and telling us he wants to be the president, right? Because we would all just you would do exactly that. You would just laugh, right? But this guy, he really has a shot, right? He really has a shot of really seeing this happen. And so you're hearing this, and it's almost like you're getting excited a little bit yourself. And so he starts talking, and he starts explaining to you his idea for his campaign. He has all of this sort of mapped out, planned out, and he's starting to talk to you about his campaign. But as he starts doing that, it's almost like your mind starts to wander a little bit. Because as he's talking, talking to you about his plan for his campaign, you start dreaming a little bit as well, because you can't help but think about how your life is going to change if he becomes president right, about how all the advantages that you'll have in your life if this guy really does win and become the president of the world, I'm the nation, my goodness, I don't know what that is, like the antichrist, I don't know what that is, but, <laughs> um, and so you start dreaming, right, and so you're, you're telling yourself, you know what, what this could possibly mean is that on the weekends when we're watching the Eagles game, you're no longer hanging out in your own house, you're watching it in the Oval Office, right? You're like gathering in the Oval Office, people are coming and giving you food, and you have your leg kicked up on the table, and you're watching the Eagles week in and week out. 
you're imagining yourself, you know what this could mean is that on random days, you're hanging out with the most powerful, influential people in the world, right? You're eating dinner with national leaders and international leaders. You're having uh, brunch with uh, movie stars and athletes, all sorts of people you have direct access to because of your friend. Or, or you're thinking to yourself, you know what this means? I'll never get a ticket again, right? Could you imagine you like you drive and you just going this you drive whatever you want at this point, right? Because you're driving, you know, as soon as a cop pulls you over, uh, you just be like, I don't think you know who I am. And you so you whip out your uh, official best friend of the president card, and they see you and they're like, Oh, I'm so, I actually didn't know who you were. Uh, you, you're free to go. Have a great day. And so you drive off, right? You imagine the advantages are all over the place. Basically, you're going to be just like Oprah's best friend. Who's Oprah's best friend? Gail. Why do we all know Gail? I have no clue. I mean, we don't know anything about her life. We don't know what she's good at. We don't know what her skill sets are. All we know is who she rolls with. She rolls with Oprah, and so we know Gail. And so now, your biggest dream in life is essentially to become Gail, right? You want to be Gail. You want to be the best, president, um, best friend of the President of the United States. And so your friend is talking to you, and he's explaining to you what his plans are, and, and it wraps up, and you are so excited. You can't wait to tell him how excited you are for yourself. I mean, for him, obviously, not for yourself, right? You're excited to see what happens. And, that's what, and so he hangs up, and there's excitement building up within you. And the next thing you know, you see this campaign actually beginning to unfold, right? And he's building a team around himself. There's people that are there to support him in his campaign. He's traveling all over the place. He's building a reputation for himself. People are really starting to get to know him. And it's like with each step that he takes, there's more and more buzz about your friend. People all over Facebook are posting articles. There's tweets about him. Uh, national news and local news all over, people are talking about your friend and the fact that this guy may actually be the next president of our country. And then comes the day when he actually gets the chance to officially make the announcement, right? To make the announcement of his candidacy for the president of the United States. And so he's a a Philly guy, right? And so he decides he's going to do it downtown. And so he gathers maybe around Independence Mall or something like that. And you get there, and there are tens of thousands of people just gathered to see this guy make his announcement, right? And there is all sorts of excitement in the air. And he goes ahead, and he makes the announcement and says, I am going to officially put in my bid to become the next president of the United States of America. And the crowd goes nuts. Right? There's banners waving in the air, people are chanting his name. There's just like an electricity that you feel in being there that morning. You are excited. And it's all of a sudden, it's like this relatively no-name, unexpected candidate is now quickly becoming the hope of the nation. People are rallied behind him, excited to see what this will look like for him to become the president. And so you're anxious about your own life, right? You're excited to see what will your life look like if you decide to follow this guy all the way through? Well, you see, the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is very similar to what we have just said in this scenario. You see, about 2,000 years ago, we read that this no-name, unexpected man named Jesus, he enters into the scene, and he starts declaring that he's going to be the ruler of what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Hear it for yourself. Right? This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what, what is going on here, actually, this is sort of the, the earliest stage of Jesus' ministry, right? You see, for the first 30-something years of Jesus' life, he basically lived a fairly ordinary life, right? There was nothing spectacular about his life. He and his, and his father were basically carpenters, and so they did manual labor week in and week out. You imagine he was uh, creating things for people. He was writing out invoices, all sorts of things. That was his life. His mom was a, a, a stay-at-home mom, and so she took care of things at home, and, and she provided for the family. There was nothing uh, impressive or radical about Jesus and his family in his earliest years. But it's like one day we start seeing this flurry of activity, right? So one day we see him bust out, and he's going to the Jordan River, and he decides that he's going to get baptized. And so he goes to this man named John the Baptist. It's actually his cousin, and he says, baptize me, right? So he goes into the Jordan. He comes back out again, and it says that all of a sudden you're hearing the voice of God, and God says, this is my son, and I'm pleased with him. You're seeing the spirit of God coming down like a dove. It's like an epic moment at that point, right? This ordinary, uh, you know, no-name person has this epic moment where God shows up audibly and visually, right? And so it says from there, he goes on, and he goes into this wilderness, right? And it says he spends 40 days and 40 nights in this wilderness, and he's, being, he's fasting during that time. And after the 40 days and 40 nights, it says that he is now tempted uh, by Satan in all sorts of ways, so, right? So in a matter of a, a little over a month, we see God and we, we see Satan as well interacting with Jesus, this ordinary guy. And it's almost like uh, both of these events need to happen in order for Jesus' ministry to really get started. And so this happens, and so he, he is done with all of that process, and now it says he starts, uh, starts off his ministry. He is, his ministry takes off. And he starts off by preaching, basically, his first ever sermon. It's a nine-word sermon. Some of you would love nine-word sermons, right? It's a nine-word sermon. And this is what he, basically what he says. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, when you and I hear that, when we hear those words, uh, you know, it's, there's a good chance that maybe that means very little to us, especially if you didn't grow up in a church context or you didn't really read the Bible much or you're not really familiar with the Bible. Those words wouldn't really mean anything to you. But you see, for the folks that Jesus is saying this to, that would be basically one of the most captivating sermons ever. Because you see, not only did this crowd have, an, have a, a familiarity with the kingdom of heaven. They actually had great expectations and a grand vision for what this kingdom would actually look like. You see, the, the, the term kingdom of heaven would sound like music in these people's ears. You see, Jesus was actually talking to a group of people, to a Jewish people, who had lived a real hard and difficult life. Right? They have been going year after year for multiple uh, years of just captivity and living under uh, oppression or, or oppressive rule in their land. Right? So first there were the Babylonians who oppressed them in their land, and they moved out, and then there were the Persians who oppressed them, and then they moved out, and now they're living under the, the rule of the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus is talking to them, he's telling them about this kingdom of heaven, and it's music to their ears because they have been living a life of constant oppression and hardship. And so when they hear this phrase, kingdom of heaven, it would actually sound like a promise of hope and rescue from a difficult life. 
right? They would hear this phrase, kingdom of heaven, and, and it would be the, the promise of a godly king, of someone that they would call the Messiah, right? This Messiah would come, and he would remove from rule uh, these oppressors who are in their land and set up this kingdom, and that they would finally have a godly king, a king that who actually cares for them overseeing their lives. And so when he hears, or when they hear kingdom of heaven, they have some grand expectations. And it's almost like, just like that, right? In a matter of some days, Jesus goes from this being this, this no name from Nazareth to now being the talk of the town. Listen to what it says. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and heal, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread all, throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So what's going on here? He's saying Jesus shows up. He starts preaching this kingdom of heaven, right? He starts telling them about this kingdom of heaven that they've all been looking forward to. But not only does he start preaching, he starts healing people left and right, right? All sorts of people, epileptics and those who were paralyzed, those who were possessed by demons, all sorts of people are coming to Jesus and they're getting healed left and right. And so what does it say? It says his popularity takes off. Like if we had a map of that, that area, that, that nation at that point, it says as far north as, as, um, as Galilee, people were hearing about him. As far east as the Decapolis, people were hearing about him. As far down low as, as Judea and Jerusalem, people were hearing about him. And all in between, there was this constant buzz about this man, Jesus, who's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he's doing some miraculous things while he's saying that. And it's in the middle of all of this buzz and activity that Jesus begins preaching what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is actually Matthew 5 through 7. It's actually the, the, uh, the scripture that we're being looking for for the next several months. It's the new series that we're looking forward to. We call it Citizens. And so we're going to be studying this sermon, considering this second sermon that Jesus preached in his ministry and what he has to say to us. And what we see is that when Jesus begins preaching this second sermon, the crowds are hanging on to every single word, everything that he's saying. Because they want to hear all about this kingdom, because they're anxiously waiting for this kingdom. And they're excited about what this kingdom could mean for their lives, how it could change their lives forever. And that's why when Jesus opens up his mouth and he starts preaching this Sermon on the Mount, what they heard coming out of Jesus' mouth was the last thing that they would expect to hear. When Jesus starts preaching and he starts saying these things, they are shocked by what comes out of his mouth concerning this kingdom. Listen to it again. It's what we read together. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, pers who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, as these folks were coming to listen to Jesus about this kingdom, without a doubt, they had all sorts of expectations about what this kingdom would be like. But I imagine that none of them who came there to listen to Jesus that day would imagine that this kingdom would be described by using words like poverty or mourning or meekness or hunger and thirst or mercy or purity or peacemaking or persecution. No, because if they were being honest, what they were expecting out of this kingdom was other things, things like power, or, or freedom, or popularity, or prosperity, or contentment. You see, they were looking for happiness. They were looking to be able to live the good life. And so what's so ironic about what Jesus is saying here is that the word that he uses over and over and over and over again in this section is the word blessed. You see, the word that's being used here, blessed, is actually the Greek word makarios, right? And that word could actually be translated into another word in English. It could be translated into the word happy. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this. Do you want to be happy? Well, happy are the poor. Or happy are those who mourn. Or happy are the meek, and so on and so forth. And so the crowds are hearing what Jesus is saying, and it sounds absolutely crazy to them. Right? It sounds like an absolute paradox in their minds because what they expected is totally not what they are hearing from Jesus' mouth. So everything that they have heard is nothing short of shocking to those who hear it. But it's almost like that's why Jesus preaches this as his second sermon. Because you consider for a moment what his first sermon was. The first sermon was this. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the word repent that he's using there, what that actually means is to have a change in mind, right? To think differently about something, to have a different perspective on something. And so as you hear through these first 10 verses of chapter 5, it's almost like Jesus is saying, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to have a different perspective concerning this kingdom that you've been looking forward to to have a change in mind concerning this kingdom because you're hoping for a kingdom that would come sort of materially or, or politically. You're expecting this kingdom who would come in and establish its rule, knock out those oppressors that are there in your land, and that, that through that kingdom that you would be able to experience life and happiness and blessedness. But Jesus is saying, you have it all wrong. You see, it's completely unlike what you expect. But here's the thing. The true kingdom, the true kingdom, the kingdom that I have come to establish is infinitely better. It's actually the true source of blessedness and happiness in our lives. And so Jesus is trying to transform their thinking. He wants to give them a right vision concerning the kingdom. But before we take some time to consider what it is that Jesus has to say about this kingdom, I think it's important for us to realize who is it that Jesus is actually talking to because what we see is that there's a bunch of people uh, that are gathered that day. 
But this sermon isn't being directed to the crowd, right? No, Jesus instead is talking specifically to those who are citizens of the kingdom. Hear with me, okay? This is verse 1. It said, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Who's them? The disciples, right? He's trying to teach the disciples because he wants them to catch a vision. You see, while the entire crowd is there, the sermon is actually being preached to the disciples. Why is that important? Because, you see, it helps us to better understand the purpose of this sermon. You see, the purpose of this sermon isn't to try to tell us how to become a member of the kingdom or to how to become a citizen of the kingdom. Instead, this sermon is actually being preached so that it could tell us to those who already belong to the kingdom, who are already citizens of the kingdom, what their lives actually should look like. Hear that for a second, right? It's not trying to tell you, how do you become a citizen of the kingdom? This is what you need to do to become a citizen of the kingdom. Instead of saying, now that you are a citizen of the kingdom, this is what your life should look like. You see, it's important for us to realize that because otherwise, all we can see this as is a sermon that's being preached to people 2,000 years ago. But you see, if you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus... Right? What that means is that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom. And so Jesus is directly talking to you. And what he wants to give you is a vision for what your life should look like as a citizen of this kingdom. But if you're here this morning and you don't trust in Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, Jesus is still actually inviting you to come and to listen because he actually wants you to catch a vision for what kingdom life looks like. And he wants to invite you to come and to follow this king. But you see, it's not even just that. You see, the reason why this sermon applies to us just as much as it applies to people 2,000 years ago is that, is that just like them, we too are often conflicted between what Jesus declares the kingdom to be like and what we desire in a kingdom. Right? There's often a conflict between what Jesus says the kingdom is like and what we ourselves desire in a kingdom. Maybe we don't use the term kingdom anymore, but maybe we use similar terms like the American dream. Right? That's essentially our kingdom. But you know, there's no difference at the end of the day between what people 2,000 years ago expected and desired and what we desire out of the American dream. Because at the end of the day, what we desire is power and freedom, and popularity, and prosperity, and contentment. We're looking for happiness. Well, you see, what that means is that basically, Jesus is also speaking to us because he wants us to repent just as much as he wanted those who were there before to repent 2,000 years ago. He wants us to consider the American dream differently. He wants to tell us, listen, do you want to be happy? Well, let me tell you what true happiness looks like. It's actually found in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our plan. We're going to take a look at a few of these Beatitudes this morning and to consider what does Jesus tell us about happiness in this kingdom. This section, verses 3 to 10, can sometimes be called the Beatitudes, right? And so another word for Beatitudes is basically just blessed, right? And so Jesus is saying, listen, what does a life of blessing look like? I'm going to show you what a life of blessing looks like. 
And so this morning, we're actually going to give ourselves to four out of the eight Beatitudes and consider how does Jesus describe a life of blessing? How does Jesus describe a life of happiness? He's saying, what does the character of a citizen in the kingdom look like? What does a life of true happiness look like? Well, let's listen to what Jesus has to say. The first thing he says is this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but when you hear the word poor, I think the first thing that comes to your mind is this material poverty, right? It's almost like uh, we're hearing Jesus say this, and the thing that comes to our mind is that Jesus is telling us, listen, if you want to be really happy, you need to be poor. But you see, that's far from what Jesus is telling us this morning. You see, this poverty that Jesus is referring to is not a material poverty. Instead, he's talking about a spiritual poverty, a, a spiritual bankruptcy. You see, to be spiritually poor is to have a keen awareness of your own sinfulness. To be spiritually poor is to have a keen awareness of your own sinfulness. It's an awareness that you have nothing to offer spiritually to God. You have nothing to offer God spiritually. That you, in and of yourself, have no basis to stand before God confidently. You see, this is the total opposite of the value system of this world that we live in, right? Think about it for a moment. Why is it that folks like Oprah or Deepak Chopra are so popular in this world? Why is that? Because they repeat to us the very thing that the world is telling us that we should believe and consider and live by. They're telling us things like true happiness is found in self-reliance. Or, or true happiness is found in self-sufficiency or self-confidence. In fact, if you go to Starbucks right now, right? If you go to Starbucks right now and you buy a cup of coffee, you'll find on each cup of coffee, Oprahisms. Like literally, you'll find quotes from Oprah all over their cups telling you all sorts of things about life looks like and what happiness looks like. My wife and I and, and my daughter were at uh, Starbucks a week ago and we saw it, right? All sorts of things about what life looks like. And when you read it, it is telling you, trust in yourself, uh, find confidence in yourself, rely in yourself. And what we, you know what we didn't see while we were at Starbucks? No one throwing the cup on the ground and stepping on it, right? No one was like offended by what the cup said because they see it and they say, that's right. I should, have find, I should be able to find myself to be enough for myself, to find sufficiency and confidence in myself. It sells because the world that we live in from the youngest of ages, we are being taught to believe what? In yourself. You're constantly being taught to believe in yourself, to depend on yourself. That's why Beyonce made that song about independence, right? Because he's saying, listen, what does life look like in its, uh, in its peak? The best life is when you live life in an independence. But Jesus is saying, listen, you know why you think this way? Do you know why you, it is that you start thinking this way? Because you actually have not understood yourself. You have a misunderstanding of yourself. You see, the truth is that you are spiritually bankrupt. You see, if you had a bank account that had no money in it, right? It doesn't matter if you go to the ATM or you go to the counter or you try debit at the grocery store. No matter how much you try to draw from it, you will always come up empty, right? And, and what Jesus is trying to tell us is, is that same thing. He's saying everything that you're searching for and everything that you're desiring isn't going to be found by digging deeper within. 
It doesn't matter how much deeper you go within yourself, you're not going to be able to find within yourself what you're looking for because you actually have nothing to draw from spiritually. You are spiritually bankrupt. And you see, this is crucial for us to understand. It goes against the grain of everything that we're taught as, we grow, as we've been growing up, but it's crucial for us to understand because only when we understand our spiritual bankruptcy will we shift our belief from ourselves to God. You see, as long as you think you have something within you, no matter how small it is, as long as you believe in yourself that you have something within you that you can stand before God with, then your belief isn't in, your, isn't in God, it's in yourself. You see, the words from this hymn, Rock of Ages, I think says it well. This is what it says. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, Jesus, what he's telling us this morning is this. He's saying, you need to realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You will never be good enough. And that's a good thing. Because you know what that does? It reminds you that you are spiritually unimpressive, but there is someone who has been impressive for you. That Jesus was everything that you are not. And that he could fulfill for you everything that you desire. As you keep digging deeper within and within and, and trying to find what you're looking for, Jesus is saying, you're searching the wrong place. Come to me. Be spiritually poor so that you can find the fullness of riches in Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, listen, do you want to be happy? Well, the world tells you to believe in yourself. And the kingdom of heaven tells you, believe in God. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if there was ever a paradoxical statement, this would be it, right? Consider what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Now, on the surface, right off the bat, it sounds like a total contradiction, right? How could it be that happy are those who are sad? I mean, is Jesus saying something like, you know what? True happiness is, is found by walking around depressed, or happiness is found by, uh, you know, being melancholy all the time or, or walking around listening to emo music, right? That's what happiness is all about. Not at all, right? Once more, we realize that this word uh, mourning, just like poverty, has a spiritual meaning. In fact, it makes sense that this beatitude follows the previous one. You see, when we begin to realize our spiritual poverty, our sin, we also begin to realize the damage and the destruction that our sin has caused in our own life and in the world around us, right? When we realize our, our poverty spiritually, we begin to see the damage that the sin has, our sin has caused in our own life and in the world around us. You see, it's exactly the reason why you will never find a day when Action News comes on at 5 o'clock and they're out of content, that they have nothing to report on. Right? You will never find that day because each day you see the effect and damage of sin in this world. Or it's exactly why you and I know the pain and the struggle of broken relationships. Right? All sorts of relationships. We know what that looks like because of sin. Or, or you and I know what it looks like to have our lives ruined by addictions of various kinds and, and the damage that it has caused in our life and in the lives of people around us. It's because of sin. 
It's the reason why things like sex slavery or, or discrimination or poverty and hunger are still problems in this world. It's because of sin. And when we see and experience the effect of sin in this world and on our lives, what Jesus says is this. It should lead us to mourn. It should lead us to grieve. It should lead our hearts to break. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, citizens of the kingdom don't see sin in this world and respond with indifference. You can't do that. You can't see sin in your life and respond with indifference. Jesus is saying, you can't see sin in somebody else's life and feel like that's their problem. Or you can't see sin in somebody else's life and feel like, at least I'm not as bad as that, and compare yourself and feel better about yourself. Now Jesus instead says, sin, both our sin and the sin in this world, should lead us to mourn. It should lead us to grieve. It should lead our hearts to break. But you and I know that this is not at all how the world operates, right? Our whole economy, think about it for a moment, our whole economy is based on the avoidance of mourning and grief, right? Grief and mourning is something that you're supposed to get over as quickly as possible so that you can return to your pursuit of happiness in life. And so we're told to do things like numb our grief and our mourning by all sorts of things like gadgets or, or food or entertainment so that literally, literally, that we can feel more passionate about the Sixers draft pick this past week and what went wrong there, right? Then about poverty in Philly or about the fact that your neighbor doesn't know Jesus or about the brokenness of your own marriage because of sin. We can be more passionate about entertainment than the things of this world. It's absurd, but it's actually true. And Jesus says this, he says, blessed Happy are those who mourn over sin, for they shall be comforted. Comforted by what? By the fact that Jesus mourns over sin even more than you do. Right? By the fact that Jesus' mourning for sin was so great that it led him to lay down his own life. That he was willing to die so that he could bring an end to sin and its destruction. What Jesus says is that he came to establish the kingdom. He has come to make all things new. That what he began 2,000 years ago with his first sermon, he came to complete. He will come to complete when he comes again. Jesus says the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And so Jesus says, mourn over sin. Mourn over your sin and mourn over the sin of this world and mourn over the destruction that it has caused. But be comforted. Be comforted in the fact that sin is not the last thing that happens. Instead, Jesus is coming to bring an end to sin fully and finally and ultimately. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I, I don't know about you, what is it that comes to your mind when you think the word meek? Uh, you probably think of somebody who is sort of quiet, right, sort of timid, uh, doesn't really say much, is sort of uh, lacking a backbone, is a, is a pushover. It reminds me, if you've ever seen the movie Office Space, of the character Milton, right? Milton is what comes to mind for me. It's almost like scene after scene, Milton is afraid to, to speak up, and he's weak-willed, and he's constantly being taken advantage of. 
But you see, the, the biblical understanding of meekness is not that at all. Instead, the biblical understanding of meekness isn't weakness. Instead, it's this. It's, it's, it's humble self-forgetfulness. Meekness can be defined as humble self-forgetfulness. In other words, meekness is the realization that your life isn't all about you. I think maybe for us, for some of us sitting here this morning, we need to hear that. Your life isn't all about you. Instead, someone who is meek sees God and sees others who are around them as being greater or more important than themselves. It means being willing to lose so that someone else can be able to win. It means being willing to sacrifice your own desires, your own gain, for the benefit of others. You see, the reason why you are able to do that is because your ultimate trust is actually in God. You see, you so trust in God's providence, in his goodness, in his care for you, that you don't have to fight to be recognized all the time. That you don't have to fight to try to gain for yourself things all the time. Instead, you trust God with your life. You're so satisfied in his provision, whatever that might be, it frees you to be able to take care of others and to consider others greater than yourself. You see, I think a good example for me of this is actually Dennis. Most of you who are sitting here this morning, uh, you probably know Dennis. If you don't know Dennis, you've probably heard Dennis before. And notice I didn't say heard of Dennis before. I said heard Dennis before because this is one of the loudest people that I've ever met in my life, right? He is a strong personality. Most people would not refer to him as timid, as weak, as a pushover, none of those words would typically be adjectives that you use to describe Dennis. But Dennis, instead, is a natural leader, right? I've seen him in his work setting where he has teams working around him and for him, where he leads them in that context. He leads us at church here in a bunch of different ways, in, in, in all sorts of areas, like administration and so on. You see, generally, when Dennis speaks, people listen, and they're willing to follow but here's the thing. While all of those things are true of Dennis, I would also say that Dennis is a great example of meekness. You see, I have seen Dennis time and time again use his power and his influence, his life, for the benefit of others. Whether we're talking about on a large scale, like the stuff that he does with BTC, with Bombay Teen Challenge, so that women and children who are caught up in sex slavery can be freed, so that Dennis does things like fundraisers and, and find people who may be able to, to offer finances so that there can be some sense of freedom for people who are going through these horrors in a different land. Or, or the way that I've seen him care deeply about people at his work. Right? I've heard him sit down and talk to me about this person who's going through this hard time at work and trying to figure out what can I do to be able to bring some, some relief, some solution to their life. Or even in the way that he spends late nights or early morning working behind the scenes so that you could be benefited. You who gather here weekly at Seven Mile Road could be benefited through his work. You see, I've seen in Dennis's life over and over again that he considers God and he considers others as being greater than himself. And so what does Jesus say to Dennis or to the members of the citizens of the kingdom? He says this. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. 
He says that we can willingly sacrifice everything here on earth, give it all up, because Jesus promises that the greater kingdom is ours. You see, one day, heaven will come down to earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that day, you will inherit something that's infinitely greater than anything that you may have sacrificed here on this planet. And when you believe that, it frees you. It frees you to consider God and to consider others as being greater than yourself. It frees you to realize that your life isn't actually all about you. And then finally this morning, let's consider the fourth beatitude. It says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, a man named St. Augustine from the 4th century once said the following. He said this. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. What is Augustine saying? He's saying all of us, everyone who is here, everyone on this planet, is actually made for God, to desire God, to ultimately find our satisfaction in God. But what do we do? We often look to other things, to lesser things, to, to fill that void that actually only he is able to, uh, to fill for us. You see, when that happens, as much as we hope to find satisfaction in those things, it will never happen because we're always going to be felt, left feeling restless and wanting more. Sadly, one of the, the, the best examples that comes to mind when I consider this beatitude is actually something that happens in Michael Jordan's life, right? Many of you would agree that Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, right? If you know anything about me, you know that I'm a huge Jordan fan. I have loved his career because he has arguably, not really arguably, he has accomplished more in his career than any other NBA player in history. And that's why it's sad what he did at his Hall of Fame speech, right? Some of you may know this. Uh, Jordan actually didn't make it onto his high school basketball team, right? So he was a sophomore in high school, and, uh, and so his coach was trying to pick players. And so uh, when he was trying out, he was actually overlooked. Instead, his, his coach picked another player named Leroy Smith. He was a, a senior in high school during that year. And so he picked Leroy Smith to be on the high school basketball team and, uh, and benched, or not even got on the team. Jordan never made the team. And so what does Jordan do? Jordan, on the night of his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, he decides that he's going to fly Leroy Smith and his high school basketball coach to that evening, right? So they're there, they're all dressed up, they're excited to be there, to be among a, a peer and to be uh, among the person that they were able to coach at one point. But that night, in front of millions of people, right, people watching on ESPN all over the world, Jordan looks at his coach in the face and he says this, he said, I wanted to make sure you understood that you made a mistake. And the question is, why would the greatest of all time, right? Why would the greatest of all time still feel the need to prove himself at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony by proving his high school basketball coach wrong? Why would he do that? Because you see, as much as Jordan sought to find satisfaction in basketball, basketball was never able to fully satisfy him. Consider all that he has accomplished. 
six titles, right? All sorts of uh, accomplishments, all sorts of things hanging up on his wall at home. And yet he was still hungry and thirsty, even to the point where at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, he's grasping for whatever he can find to feed his hunger and his thirst. But you see, it's far from being just Jordan, right? You and I can be exactly the same way. We seek ultimate satisfaction in all sorts of things, in our job, in our positions, right? We are working tirelessly day in and day out, hoping to climb that ladder until there is no more to climb. And some of us have reached the top of that, that ladder, and yet you're still hungry and thirsty for something more. Some of us, it's relationships, right? You're hoping for someone to really be able to come into your life and to fulfill you in this way, and yet some, someone has come into your life and you're still feeling dissatisfied. Or maybe it's your money and your possessions. It's always the, the next iPhone or the, the better car or a grander house, and you get it and you're satisfied for a little bit and yet you find yourself hungry over and over again. We're never satisfied, and so we always turn to something else. And so Jesus tells us this morning, do you want to find, find true satisfaction? Well, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, happy are those who, whose greatest hunger and thirst is to know God and to become more like him. Because he's saying, listen, that's the very thing you were created for. That's how you're wired. That's the hunger that you're really feeling. The purpose of your life is that you would know God and become more like him. And so nothing less will ever be good enough. You see, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's going to be a desperation in your life that you feel that only God is going to be able to satisfy. There's going to be a starvation that you feel in your life that can only be satisfied in being with the Lord. There's going to be an urgency that you have for your Savior that can only be satisfied in relationship with the Lord. Nothing else, not money, not relationships, not even basketball, can satisfy your hunger and thirst. Instead, Jesus says, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied because God alone is the one who is able to satisfy you. In fact, you were created to be satisfied by God. Well, this morning, we'll stop at the fourth beatitude. But as we close, I want to just ask you a question. Are you sitting here this morning as a citizen of the kingdom? Or are you sitting here this morning as a participant in the crowd? Because Jesus is saying, listen, if you are a citizen of the kingdom, I want to present to you a new vision for what kingdom life actually looks like. He wants to invite you this morning to examine your own life to see how does your life compare to what he says in these beatitudes. How does it compare? And what he wants to do is he wants to actually invite you to happiness, to blessedness, to satisfaction this morning. And he's saying, you know how you find that? You find that by realizing that you're spiritually poor and mourning over the sin that has been in your life and the destruction it has caused, and yet finding comfort in the fact that Jesus has come to make all things new. He is everything that you are looking for. Trust in him. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in him. But if you're here, to, here this morning and you're not a citizen, instead you are a member of the crowd, Jesus is inviting you to something else this morning. 
He's inviting you to abandon the kingdom of earth that you're living in right now. Because it will never really satisfy you. Because you were created to be satisfied, satisfied by something that's infinitely greater. You see, true blessedness and, and true happiness, the true king himself is found in the kingdom of heaven. No one else or nothing else will be able to satisfy your hunger and thirst. And so this morning, the king invites you. He invites you to repent, to see your kingdom differently, to see his kingdom differently, and to become a citizen of the kingdom by trusting in the king. Would you respond this morning to his invitation? Let's pray together.